0: It's Monday, March 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden has a growing border crisis on his hands, as we are seeing huge numbers of migrant children coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. The administration has dispatched FEMA to help with transferring these unaccompanied minors from the custody of border protection to the care of Health and Human Services. In other political news, there's action in the Senate to try and reform the filibuster into a talking filibuster in the hopes that bills on voting rights and gun control can be passed, and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo continues to face more calls to resign. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us to break it all down. Next, as more states start to open up and vaccine distribution continues to grow, many are looking at who did what right during the pandemic. Two states that are often compared for how different an approach they took were California and Florida. Governor Newsom in California is facing a recall effort for his handling of the pandemic, while Governor Ron DeSantis is being praised in some conservative circles for his handling. California has a better death rate, but higher unemployment. Florida has more kids in school, but is facing a budget shortfall. Samya Karlamangla, health reporter at the LA Times, joins us for who handled COVID-19 better. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in. Governor uh, began to lose more and more
1: of the support of his governing partners. Um, I think the ability to do the hard work that needs to be
0: done has been diminished. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Well, it seems that President Biden has, very early on in his term now, has a border crisis brewing there at the Southern border. We're seeing record number of migrant children showing up at the U S Mexico border so much so that they're dispatching FEMA to help with the kids there. They don't want them to be in the, with customs and border protection. They're going to, they want to move them to the department of health and human services. So there's just a, a huge influx of migrants coming in again. And this is the latest plan for Biden to help kind of smooth some of that over. We've been
1: watching the White House sort of set the groundwork that they recognize that this is a crisis and that they kind of feel there aren't any good solutions here. They know the criticism of the Trump administration on how they handled particularly children and families at the border, and they didn't want to find themselves repeating those mistakes. So as you said, they announced this weekend that they will bring FEMA in, an agency That is, you know, designed and has sort of approach that's different than Border Patrol, that's meant to give shelter to people in crisis and not sort of protect people who they view as invading. And I think that's really why we see this shift. They want people who are going to be serving, helping protecting instead of people that are going to be trying to keep migrants out, which is really, especially under Trump, what the the Border Patrol was doing.
0: Right. Yeah. And the numbers are pretty staggering. I mean, they're saying that there's about 3,200 unaccompanied children in the custody of Border Protection. There's 8,500 teens and kids already under Health and Human Services custody. So there's a lot of kids uh, to deal with. And the posture, as you mentioned, has changed from this administration from the last one. Um, You know, and and they're getting a lot of criticism on that front as well saying, you know, because of these policy changes, things like that, and and the posture change, that's why more immigrants are coming to the border.
1: That's right, you know, the criticism is gonna be there from Trump uh, and Trump allies, that this is sort of a a welcome mat that Biden has put out for these children to come to the US. And I think that the Biden administration is sort of okay with that, that criticism. You know, can you imagine putting your child alone in a caravan and sending them thousands of miles away, it's an act of desperation by these parents and that they are willing to, to take these children in whose parents were willing to make such a huge leap of faith that there would be someone to take them because they're concerned about their safety and security in their own country.
0: Uh, another uh, thing brewing in in the Senate is Kind of this whole notion about reforming the filibuster. We're always hearing about that. It never happens. Uh, But now there might be some support for it. Senator Joe Manchin has expressed support for a talking filibuster, which would put us in line for seeing some very long speeches.
1: That's right. And uh, we have a great piece on NBCnews.com from my coworker, Sahil, looking at sort of the growing appetite for the return of the talking filibuster. And I think that's actually what most people think of when they think of the filibuster. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, oh, right. you give a really, really long speech, and then it kills the bill. The Senate, trying to get away from sort of those theatrics, had instituted these rules where you needed 60 votes. And so that was how you overcame the filibuster. And then there was no need for anyone to talk at length anymore. This would bring that back. It would bring back the talking filibuster. And the thinking is, if you really want to stop something, you have to stand there and do it. And two, there's a, you can only talk for so long. You can only read so many <laughs> phone books right. uh, and it would bring an into it at some point.
0: Yeah. It's a, uh, who gives up first basically would win on this front. And there's a lot of stuff that they're, you know, they're considering this because there's a lot of legislation that they want to get passed. The Democrats, at least things on gun control, and then also voting rights uh, that they want to pass. And It's all but dead in the Senate unless they make some modifications to this. So it's important. That's why they're trying to explore reforming the filibuster.
1: This is about passing some Democratic priorities that they know don't have any Republican support or very little Republican support. And this is really the, the only way that they have
0: much of a chance of getting those done. Right. We saw it with the COVID relief bill split right down the middle party lines. So we'll see how that pans out as well. And then. Finally uh, just again New York Governor Andrew Cuomo continues to fight for his political life really. We have seven women now who are accusing him of being inappropriate. There's accusations of uh, that he's a bully, creating toxic work environments, all this stuff. We have Senator Chuck Schumer and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand calling for him to resign now. There's so many people in his state uh, at the state level that are calling for him to resign. There's so many calls for it right now. Does he have any allies in this? You know, we still have the investigation going. What is he what is he thinking?
1: You know, Friday afternoon, we really saw a watershed moment where most of the Democrats in the state's congressional district, led by the most senior, Jerry Nadler, and then the two U.S. senators, Chuck Schumer and Kristen Gillibrand, all calling for Cuomo to resign in the in the wake of all of these accusations, I, you know. It seemed on Friday like his time is numbered. You know, he's sort of still holding on. That's an immense amount of pressure. Um, And it's going to start to take a toll. But you have to ask, what can he do? What can he get done when he doesn't have the confidence of the rest of his party? We know that a majority of the state assembly has said he should resign. They could start impeachment proceedings. I mean, it's hard to get bills passed in your legislature (laughs) when they all think that you should be gone. And so I think we're going to see the really the screws tighten here in the coming days. When I talk to people who who are close to the governor or who know the governor, they say they think he's just really determined to hold on. But man, this is a hard one to hold on to, especially given the volume of calls for him to resign.
0: Yeah, he said he's not going to resign. He's not going to bow to cancel culture. Um, As I mentioned, there's an investigation ongoing. Do we have a timeline for that? Because that seems like if that comes through, the news is still continued to be bad. Then at that point, you know, something's got to give with the governor.
1: I mean, we could be looking at weeks of this of this investigation. Um, This isn't a matter of days. And for that reason, you know, this is a lot of time for him to endure these calls. So it's going to be hard for him to make it through, I think, this whole investigation timeline.
0: Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Florida, because of the way that it is with its climate and the way the, the state is set up, is kind of lucky. And California is kind of unlucky, especially L.A., just because such a big city. It's kind of the only place in the country that people thought could have a New York-style outbreak. Joining us
0: now is Samia Mangla, health reporter at the L.A. Times. Thanks for joining us, Samia. Of course. Thanks for having me. There's been a lot of comparisons between California and California and Florida when it comes to COVID-19 and and who might have handled it better. The two states really took very different paths on how they wanted to address this. And, uh, you know, we're just seeing a lot of stuff go on with all of this. You know, California put in a ton of restrictions. The economy has suffered because of it. We're just constantly hearing stories about businesses, restaurants, just closures. It's been really bad. Florida, on the other side, took a, a different approach, you know, really wasn't heavy on the mask wearing They allowed indoor restaurant dining. They got kids back in school a lot sooner. And then on on the political side, you know, their governors are facing completely different things. In Florida, Ron DeSantis is being praised in some circles. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom is facing a recall effort for his handling of all this. So the two states couldn't be any different on this. But, Samia, you wrote an article talking about who handled this better and dug into some of the numbers. So let's talk a little bit about that. Help us walk through it. Yeah, I'm a health
2: reporter for the L.A. Times, and this is like everyone's favorite comparison uh, when it comes to COVID in the U.S. And so I felt like we had to tackle it. But that was sort of presented a strange question, because once we started looking into these two states, we kind of realized that the reason people have landed on comparing these two states is not so innocent. Like if you want to argue that lockdowns and various rules to restrict the spread of the coronavirus don't work, a good example to prove that is to look at California and Florida, because Florida is a state that had very few rules and did much better than states with the same sort of political leanings. And California is a state that had a lot of rules that didn't do as well as you might expect. So what I'm getting at is that there are a ton of states in the U.S. that did what Florida did and did really, really poorly. And then there are a bunch of states that did what California did and did really, really well. And so this comparison, it's kind of cherry picking to just focus on these two states. But we decided to, you know, look into it and see what we could find. And the sort of short version is that Florida, because of the way that it is with its climate and the way the the state is set up, is kind of lucky. And California is kind of unlucky, especially L.A., just because such a big city. It's kind of the only place in the country that people thought could have a New York style outbreak. And we didn't have one quite that bad, but, you know, we have a lot of risk factors. And so it's not quite comparing apples to oranges. But we did try to compare them as well as we could.
0: Yeah, I mean, for California's part, if not for L.A., it would have fared much better. So L.A. was hit very hard. And as you mentioned, the individual factors really matter here. In L.A., there's a lot of overcrowding. There's a lot of families living in the same household, which we know promotes the spread of the virus. So there's that on one side of it. And you mentioned the weather, the dry air might keep those virus particles in the air a little more. On Florida's side, the humidity helps out a lot with that. They also have an older population who, you know, a lot of experts say that they were probably practicing this, you know, safe social distancing and and taking care of themselves, which probably helped the state as a whole. So we're looking at a lot of different factors that helped each state out.
2: I think people have this almost false perception of California that it's a place with lots of celebrities and a very wealthy state. And I mean, that sort of is not true. We have these huge agricultural sector we produce food for like the entire country we have huge numbers of essential workers and as you mentioned la is the most overcrowded city in america so there are rate of overcrowding which is different than density a lot of time we talk about density and density matters too that's sort of just like are you in a city or are you in a rural area but overcrowding is really a measure of how many people are packed into a single home and as you can kind of picture that it is more important for preventing the spread of the coronavirus or facilitating the spread of the coronavirus, because if you have six people in a one-bedroom apartment and one of them comes home from their job as an essential worker with COVID, there's nowhere else for those people to isolate. And so LA has the highest rate of overcrowding, double the rate of New York or the Bay Area. And that's a huge thing that we had to grapple with. And Florida, we don't quite understand exactly what role climate plays, but it does seem as though Florida just isn't California. Florida doesn't have like eight giant mega cities like we do. They just don't have the same kind of risk factors.
0: So digging into the numbers, California did have a lower rate of deaths than Florida. How did those numbers look?
2: So the states, if you were to rank them, all the states in the country, from the highest per capita deaths to the lowest, you have like New Jersey and New York at the top, just because of what we saw in the spring when we didn't know anything about COVID. And then when you go... Down the list, you're going to hit Florida first, they They're 25th, right in the middle of the pack, and then you're going to hit California 29th. So just about four spots below. So our death rate from COVID in California is about 138 per 100,000 residents. So 138 of every 100,000 people that live in California has died from COVID. And Florida's is 153 per 100,000. So that's not a huge uh, difference. I mean, I said one, they're ranked 25th and 29th, so they're pretty close to each other but it, it amounts to an 11% difference. Florida's 11% higher. And I know that those numbers sound small, but you know we're talking about California, the biggest state in the country. If our death rate was 11% higher, which is what it would be if it was the same as Florida's, there would be 6,000 more people in California who would be dead with COVID. And I know, like, our, you know the death tolls from COVID are just so, so big that 6,000 sounds like not a lot, but the 6,000 is a huge number of people. The deadliest natural disaster in California history is the 1908 San Francisco earthquake. And in that earthquake, 3,000 people died. So this is double that. If we had the same rate as Florida, we would have had a death toll twice as much as that earthquake just from that difference.
0: In California, the unemployment rate has doubled to about 9.3% over the course of this. Florida unemployment rate increased to about 5.1%. So Florida's doing better there on the California side, though. They have a better state budget outlook than Florida does. But in California specifically, where Governor Gavin Newsom is facing a recall effort, I mean, the economy is one of the things where he really was dinged on a lot and people were just not happy. You know, very restrictive business closures made a lot of people angry. And on the Florida side, business was open more and that bears out in their unemployment rate.
2: It's hard to measure equally just because of all of the different ways our economy is hurt in the short term and the long term by the pandemic. But yes, Florida has a lower unemployment rate and has had a lower, a smaller drop in their unemployment rate. So that's pretty clear. And then there's lots of things that sort of lots of sectors in Florida that bounced back in a way that California didn't because we've just been closed for so long. Like they have uh, Walt Disney World open in Florida. And so they have tourism and theme parks and stuff like that and income from that that we just really haven't had in the same way in California. And I think it's important to mention the schools closing and being closed for so long in California is, I know we don't think of that as an economic impact, but that too has economic consequences. A loss of education for a year for you know our next generation is not does not bode well for sort of their economic future or just that's a huge piece of building up an
0: economy. And, um, and women in the workforce, too, uh, have been hit by this especially hard when it comes to family units. You know, that usually they're the first ones that are staying home, taking care of the kids or helping them with their schoolwork. And we've there's been numerous studies that show that it's harder for women who drop out of the workforce to get back in. So that's another wrinkle that really affects the economy.
2: The job losses for women have been much greater than for men. And there are these subtle losses that are also sort of gendered. Like an economist I talked to was talking about the losses in productivity that come from people working at home, especially if you have kids. And, you know, if you're a parent working from home, you're helping out with the kids, you're not doing as much work because you just can't really focus in the same way. And those parents, that that often falls to the woman or the mother. And so we see those losses are felt by them too. And who knows how that will hurt women's ability to move up in the workforce, you know, after the pandemic's over, if they've essentially lost a couple years of work because of having to watch their kids at home. So I mean, that's a a big economic loss in California, for sure. But yeah, we see the our tax revenue in California was actually like higher than it's been in the past. And that's because of the sort of uneven distribution of the job losses, like people who are sort of more upper middle class or still have their jobs and the stock market's doing fine. So they're still making money. And It's not totally like California did really badly with the economy and Florida did really well. We actually have a budget surplus this year and Florida has the opposite. So I I guess we'll all see in a couple of years how these states are doing.
0: Yeah, and forecasters say that uh, California is going to enjoy some very fast growth, probably faster than the nation as a whole. We'll have to see how that bears out. The last thing I wanted to touch on briefly, you mentioned it, kids in school. So Florida has had public schools open since August There's a lot of them that still have the option to do remote learning if they want. But Florida has opened the schools. California is in this struggle period right now. Teachers are very concerned about the virus. Uh, You know, they want vaccines. And most of it's being done learning remotely for kids right now. So this is another difference in how the states have handled it. California has not been able to get their kids back in school.
2: Kind of an interesting situation. I think in August, when Florida Governor DeSantis opened all the schools, it seemed like a really risky thing to do. And I think the science has kind of shifted or our priorities have shifted. We just have realized it's unsustainable to have kids out of school for this one. So I would say that you know, DeSantis made a lot of moves that public health experts were kind of like, oh God, please don't do that, that's really risky. But the schools one is one where I think public health experts kind of feel like, okay, he took a lot of risks and a lot of them didn't pan out. You know, they had this you know, big surge in the summer. But the schools one has been one where you know, maybe that was a good decision and that that will be something that people will be mad at, continue to be mad at Governor Newsom about because they've had their kids in school since August. And I think upwards of 80 percent of kids in California are still learning at home.
0: Samya Mangla, health reporter at the L.A. Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course.
2: Thanks for having me.